Hey, it's Martine. I am popping into your feed on a Saturday morning because recently I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with one of my favorite authors, Curtis Sittenfeld. Curtis, I'm so happy to be here, especially because uh, the last time when I interviewed you for your last book, I was in my closet (laughs) with my dog, like, barking outside. I don't know if you were in a closet, but it was, like, April of 2020, and things were really weird. (laughs) And I think that this is a lot better. So thank you for being here. Thank everyone for being here. Thank you. I, yeah, I think I, I have a little um, office in my, in my house in Minnesota, and I think what I would do is, like, stuff a blanket next to my... So I wasn't literally in a closet or literally under a blanket, but it was, it was messy. Curtis and I sat down in front of a live audience uh, at an event that we held here in D.C. earlier this month, and we were there to talk about her new book, Romantic Comedy. This is a book that I devoured in one sitting, and I know the same is true for a lot of people who have read it. And I wanted to talk with Curtis about what it was like to approach this book as a work of purely escapist fiction, but also as a way to process some of the really tough stuff that we've all been through for the past few years. Just a warning, if you haven't yet read the book and you plan to, there are a few small spoilers. I actually want to ask, how many people have read it already? Even though this came out, like, what, like 10 days ago, (laughs) I feel like everyone who's read it, right, has, like, gone through it in 24 hours because it is that much of a, like, delicious read. Um, But so this is about a show uh, that's supposed to be Saturday Night Live um, called The Night Owls and a writer on that show. Um, And it centers on this thing called the Danny Horst Rule. And I was hoping you could explain what that is. Um, well, so, so I would say I always have to give a kind of disclaimer that I think, I think uh, Sally, the protagonist, thinks it's a rule or like a, an ironclad law. In, in fact, I would say it's maybe more of a pattern, but um, she has noticed that on this particular um, sketch comedy show and then sometimes also in, in life, um, there can be a pattern of talented but maybe ordinary-seeming men um, dating women who, who seem more like, you know, goddess-like or transcendently gorgeous and talented and, um, and you know, smart and good at their jobs. And uh, it doesn't seem to... What, what she particularly notices is that it doesn't seem to kind of cut in the direction of an ordinary woman very conspicuously dating up. In this case, like a, a sketch writer a female sketch writer dating a smoking hot male celebrity who's, who's a guest on the show. Um, I, I just have to say that I, I know that you don't want to share publicly who you were thinking of in this very hot like celebrity host slash musical guest, but this person is like objectively very, very hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the, the funny thing is, so he's a musician. Noah is a musician, and it's been really like fun and but also kind of revealing and interesting when people say who they think he might be based on and I would say actually I think that his music is inspired by a few people but I don't think he has their person I mean I don't really know enough about their personalities <laughs> but and also his appearance I mean it's like I don't want to deconstruct him so much that it, it you know ruins him or something but some people like people who are in their 20s will say oh is it um like Justin Bieber or Shawn Mendes, and then someone 
closer to my age, which is 47, might say like, oh, is it you know, John Legend or John Mayer? And then someone actually said to me, is it um, Richard Marks? Which, which <laughs> is a pretty broad, yeah, broad, like... It know, speaks to people from all different Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, what I love about the Danny Horst rule is that it does seem to be a little bit based on real life. Mm. What, talk about what your influences were when you kind of came up with this idea of like, oh, what if we had a, a comedy writer who was writing about this dynamic that we have sometimes noticed? Um, well, so as you said, you know, my last book, Rodham, came out in, in the spring of... Oh! <laughs> That's so, it's so touching because, one, I, like, never left the house for Rodham, so, you know, um, and, I mean, being in D.C., thank you, um, uh, but it was, and I definitely, like, I felt, I felt very invested in that book, and I felt very proud of it, and it came, it was published in this world that, like, none of us, you know, could have imagined, and so, while doing Zoom events, while, while you know, wearing a shirt like this on top and sweatpants on the bottom, if I was asked, um, you know, what, what will your next project be, I would say, I want to write something short and fun. And I started another novel, and I got about um, maybe like six or eight months into writing it and, and realized it was not short and also not fun. Um, and I mean, I, I actually might go back to it because I did think it was interesting in spite of... Um, and meanwhile, my family was watching a lot of Saturday Night Live during the pandemic. Um, my, my kids are now 12 and 14, so I think they were maybe like... Uh, you know, if we started watching, not because of the pandemic, we, I actually first showed them a sketch in December 2019. They were maybe like a little too young, which I think can be a huge part of SNL's appeal. Um, just, I mean, including like kind of being like, I don't get the joke, but like it seems very, you know, intriguing and clever. So anyway, while we watched, I would think... Um, you know, I observed this pattern that other people have... And we're, I think we're allowed to say the words Pete Davidson. Um, <laughs> there's also, well, you also brought up Colin Jost. Yeah, Carla Col Colin Jost. And there's also Emma Stone is married to a now former SNL writer who she met when she hosted the show. Um, and there's a, there are a few other examples. Um, but anyway, I would think to myself, um, someone should write a screenplay for a romantic comedy about a writer at a show like this who writes a sketch making fun of this phenomenon and how it wouldn't happen for, you know, like an, an ordinary woman, however you define that. And then that week there's a host that she has chemistry with. And then after I, I set aside my not short and fun novel, um, I started to think, oh, like maybe that screenplay should be a novel, and maybe, maybe that someone should be me, and then I started writing it. But it also feels like you're really coming for Pete Davidson. In all Does it? I'm like, I don't know, he seems like a nice guy, oh, big smile, I, pretty funny. It's so funny because, okay, this is what I'll say, I, I actually really sincerely hope it doesn't seem like I'm coming for Pete Davidson, because so one, well, okay, I, I have so much to, we could just make this like all, all Pete Davidson from, from here on out. Also for people who don't know, I, my mom is watching and she like knows nothing about SNL uh, or any uh, of this, like Pete Davidson dated Kim Kardashian. And yeah, yeah, other, he, yeah, and, um, and a few other Ariana Grande, right? Yes, yeah. Ariana Grande, which after she was a musical guest on the show. Um, so I think that he seems like very 
sweet and charismatic, and it doesn't seem weird to me that all these gorgeous women want to date him. Like the, the funny thing is that the ultimate conclusion I came to after giving this like extensive thought for a long time <laughs> was all, that it's actually it's not surprising that say Scarlett Johansson apparently wanted to marry Colin Jost. It's it's almost the the surprising <laughs> or depressing part. I mean, I, I really do feel like like what would be better than having a funny partner? Really, like I mean, everything else gets kind of boring, but like being being funny, you know, lasts forever. Um, but is what we tell ourselves. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I I um, it seems like like the sort of most you know. Dreamy male celebrities should want to find should want to find like female comedians like that's really the the sort of um, which obviously this is all a very heterosexual version of this I think it also applies that like I would think anyone would want to date the the funniest person that they could possibly find um, but anyway uh, so so. P, just to just to clo <laughs> close the Pete Davidson loop. And Pete Davidson listens to this. This is why I know, I know, I know. No, I, like I really do. Well, the the funny thing is, it turns out as I've learned, whatever book you write, you end up being sort of um, like the recipient of, pe of people's confessions on that topic. So <laughs> when I wrote um, Eligible, which was like a retelling of Pride and Prejudice. Um, oh. oh. <laughs> It, it meant more when you only did it for Rod on actually. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but people would come up to me and almost like whisper, like, I've never read any Jane Austen. Or, or they might say, like, every year I reread Persuasion. Or like some, one time a, a woman um, who was, I would guess she was like maybe 80 um, in Milwaukee gave me like an I Heart Darcy pin that I still have. So, oh my and I, like, I loved it. And, but it turns out with romantic comedy, um, and we can kind of get to this part, but the, the people come up and sometimes they'll say, oh, I once had an email courtship because there's that. But the other thing is I'm now um, like the recipient of a lot of 40-somethings, 40-something women's confessions about if they do or don't find Pete Davidson attractive. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I, I feel that's, like... That's wonderful. <laughs> I think, yeah, I know, it's very, it's very interesting, but I kind of feel like... Oh, sure. Like, I'm, I'm very, um, you know, like, I, I think he seems sweet and charming. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to kind of convince, I, and, and very, like, tender-hearted, you know? I see some real backpedaling here. <laughs> so, but, but now I want to talk about the opposite of this, right? Which is the dynamic between the protagonist, Sally Mills, and Noah Brewster, who's this, like, pop singer and incredibly famous, incredibly rich, incredibly attractive... And part of it, I mean, it seemed like it's actually a sort of challenging premise because it's like, oh, here's this hot guy who's rich, who likes the main character. What is, what is the conflict? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, that like, sounds great. Where are the obstacles? Yeah. Or, or in some ways, like, should we even be rooting for this, right? Like, isn't this rich guy, this, this super famous celebrity guy, isn't his ego going to go to his head? Do we really want our, like, wonderful, ordinary main character to end up with, with him? How, how, did you, how did you navigate that? Um, well, I think it's true that, that there are maybe not as many... Um, conventional external obstacles in the story, and a lot of the obstacles are sort of Sally's self-sabotaging um, and, and being unable to get out of her own way. And I, I definitely, I like 
reading about and writing about neurotic characters. Like, I just, I feel like it's, like, more interesting. I mean, I like other kinds of books, too, but... Um, so I do think she's, like, grappling with her own insecurity. And again, I feel like, um, you know, she's in her late 30s. She's won an Emmy. She's professionally successful. She was married and divorced in her early 20s. And I do feel like, like, um, actually, someone who was, I think, you know, probably, if I'm 47, someone who's probably more than 20 years younger than I am, interviewed me, and, and I was kind of saying, oh, yeah, like, people, <laughs> people in their late 40s are very confused, and, you know, my friends who go on dates will sort of talk in exactly the same terms as I feel like my friends and I talked when we were, like, 13 about if they have a crush on someone or whatever, and I think she was shocked and horrified, but I, <laughs> I, I do feel like being kind of competent or confident in one area of your life does not guarantee that you are. And so, and even if it's like you're somebody who like weeps at the dentist or like, you know, is very good at your job, but like can't drive on the highway because it's so stressful. Like that's very endearing to me. Like, again, I don't, I don't think, I don't know almost, like if you really know someone, I don't think anyone is like a hundred percent sort of poised and competent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> except you, except you. Certainly. Um, what I also loved about the book was the world that you built, this place that is TNO slash SNL. Um, and the first half of the book essentially takes place in uh, one week of that show, right? That they have the show on Saturday and it starts on Monday and you're just going through the whole week with the, with the main character as they you know, start pitching the sketches and you're seeing behind the scenes of the show. So how did you build this world? Like how, it seemed very realistic. I, I felt like I, I know how an episode of, S, of SNL yeah. is made now that I've read this. Um, um, how, I, how did you go about making that? It's so funny because when, when you're like, how did you build this world? I feel like you should be saying like, how did Lauren Michaels build this world? <laughs> like I, I wish I could take credit. I mean, the, the research that I did was kind of, you know, like there was a time when I thought, I think I've read 100% of the SNL memoirs by cast members. And then, like, a day later, I was like, oh, no, I think I've read 25% of them. But I read, like, probably eight <laughs> of them, including they're the well-known ones, and which I, I mean, I loved. It was, it was such a joy to do all this research. But um, in addition to, like, Tina Fey or Amy Poehler, um, Tracy Morgan, um, Rachel Dratch, there's a, a real gem that I think is lesser known is... Um, a cast member, Jay Moore, like M-O-H-R, from the early 90s, wrote what I feel like is the most fearlessly bridge-burning memoir that, <laughs> that I read. And he also, he made a choice that I think most of the other writers didn't make, which was it, he, he kind of ignores, like, his upbringing, any relationships. It's, like, all on set. And it's, just, and it's nothing but SNL for two years. And it's called Gasping for Airtime. And, he, I mean, again, it's, like, very candid. So there was, there was that. There's actually James Franco made a documentary about... Sorry, what? I know. I think <laughs> About heard, SNL? Yeah. I've heard that it was maybe, like, a master's thesis or something. And it feels very low-budget. This is probably at least 10 years ago. Very low budget and very... He was given a ton of access. Um, there's also... SNL itself makes... Um, it's almost like teeny tiny documentaries or something where it'll be like, this is how the 
um, you know, the wardrobe department works, and this is how the sets get built. And um, there's a 750-page oral history called Live from New York that, again, is just like... A, you read the whole thing? I, 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 <laughs> I, like, devoured it. Like, it was such a pleasure. And then also... Um, we live in like, I mean, of course, the golden age of all podcasts, but the golden age of um, comedy podcasts, where I'd be, it'd be like, um, this is Conan O'Brien interviewing David Spade, and then this is like David Spade interviewing Conan O'Brien. You know, like, there's just so many. And obviously, Mark Maron was sort of obsessed with Lauren Michaels and SNL for, for years, and then finally successfully interviewed Lauren Michaels. And then finally, I did interview two people who worked for SNL in the, in the recent past, but ooh. I... Did you say I, ooh or who? Oh, well, no. My, I, said, I said ooh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Okay. And then my next question was, who? <laughs> I, I know. It's funny. I, I feel, like, almost more protective of them than they seem to feel of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's... Were they, were they actors or writers? No, they weren't actors. Okay. Um, but it was... I, I will say, though, that... And I, I feel this way about, like, for instance, my Laura Bush book or my Hillary book. Like, you definitely will not find any juicy real secret. Like, it's not like I have ever uncovered something in, a, like, a journalistic capacity. It's, it's more, like, I mean, there, I think there's, it's about as realistic as I could make it, but it's not like a blind gossip item about anyone. I mean, there, it, the, the wig thing is actually... I was going to bring <laughs> up the wig thing. I was, I, I was going to say, you did your research, and then I did my research oh. on your research. <laughs> And if you haven't read the book, there is a mention of a wig sandwich, oh. <laughs> which is that a character um, uh, wears some type of hairpiece, potentially a toupee, but they don't want to admit it publicly, uh, and they have to be wearing these costumes because, you know, it's TNO, and so the, they basically have to have their toupee on and then put a hair, uh, hair net over it and then have another wig on top of that, and it's a wig sandwich, and I was telling Curtis before that I was so obsessed with this idea that I Googled it, and it turns out that Colin Jost wrote about this in his memoir, and he did not say explicitly but implied that this happened to a person who was hosting SNL. Colin Jost's book, A Very Punchable Face, is, is wonderful, by the way. You should also clap for that. <laughs> I didn't write we don't, it. We don't but... need to clap for Colin Jost. <laughs> Um, so, so what, you know, there was so much to, to, to work off of in terms of things that you wanted to incorporate from the real SNL world, but what did you make different? Uh, that's a good question. Um, well, okay, so one thing I did was that I, that I think no self-respecting SNL writer would do is I sometimes gave almost like cutesy names to the sketches, and I think that the names are intentionally vague because no one wants to give away the joke and you just don't I mean I think there's kind of a I don't know if it's like playing it cool ethos or something but so at one point there's a sketch that that Sally has written that's like Nancy Drew and the disappearing access to abortion or something and but it's like no one would actually I mean you can see why I felt that was tempting but it was no one would actually call a sketch that and then I think that there's a night when I mean this is really like in the weeds, but I think that on maybe Tuesday nights, which are the nights they write all night, um, that 
Lauren Michaels takes out the guest host for like, a, you know, like an 11 p.m. dinner and, and maybe like the head writer. And I think I make them go out on Monday night, not Tuesday night. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I know I was doing I was doing research where I was like, because there's there's also, um, you know, like there's the writer's offices on the 17th floor. And then there's like the studio is more, you know, like um, and, and I would be like. The, the ultimate questions that I had for the people I interviewed were so nitty-gritty and were like, where's the bathroom that, like, Lauren Michaels uses? Or, like, is it, you know, is it... When he does this, is he in his in the studio or in, like, the wow. office up there? Or, like, where does a writer stand when the live show is happening? Like, it was, it was things like that. Wow. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that it does feel like there was a lot of pressure on you in this book to make a compelling case that the episode that you are single-handedly oh. writing is like a believable episode of SNL. Like by the time I got halfway through the book, I was like, I don't know, if you put Curtis in a, in a room for a week, <laughs> she could write the whole script to SNL and it would be pretty good. So yeah, I don't know. Was it, did it feel like you had to kind of pump up your kind of comedy brain to be able to like embody what it would mean to make, you know, not, not just like the nuanced sort of like, like commentary about the human condition <laughs> stuff, but like, like crazy silly sketches that involve farts and <laughs> like biological humor. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I actually feel like with my, um, books, and especially, I think, if there is, if, if like, I, I wouldn't want to be thought of as, like, stunty. Like, I feel like, like, oh, it's also heartfelt. But, like, if I, if I wrote a book like, you know, Rodham or something, where it's, like, a sort of, like, <laughs> 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 um, like um, you know, sort of, a, I don't know, like, ambitious or, or risky premise or something, I, I feel like I... Um, will kind of like set rules for myself that allow me in my own mind to do it. But then the weird thing is then it gets published and like no one knows what those rules are except for me. And so like, for example, with eligible, you know, I felt like, like I'm not declaring that I think I'm the second coming of Jane Austen and, and what I'm, you know, it's like this is a total like fangirl, you know, homage project. And I feel like this is, you know, a love letter to SNL, and I, I definitely know that, like, I'm, I'm not Tina Fey, and only Tina Fey is Tina Fey. Um, and I, so there aren't. It's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm delighted that you, you feel that way. I mean, there's, there are no, there are very few lines. I mean, I think there's maybe like one exception or two exceptions of scenes where you get lines from the actual sketches. Uh, and the, the way my approach in that case was. Um, like I think just going through life, I often find life um, undignified and, and you know absurd and embarrassing. And, and I'll think to myself, this is like an SNL sketch. And so I was like, all I have to do is like every time I think this is like an SNL sketch, I have to like <laughs> write it down for like four months or something, and I'll have by the end you'll episode. Have a yeah. So it's like, so. It, um, but I, I kind of, again, like, like, I think there is some weird, I don't know, if, like, if it's like a delusion that where I'm like, I'll write a book called Romantic Comedy, even though I'm very <laughs> clear that, like, I'm not a comedian, you know? And, but, but, I mean, I have, I think I do have more confidence in my ability to, like, write an, an sort of emotionally realistic novel and get... A, a character through various scenes and, and all that, but there is there's there's one scene where um, 
the characters are kind of brainstorming on like dogs Google searches. And I will say, my, my children helped me with that. We got a pandemic <laughs> dog that we're, of course, obsessed with. And one time, we were trapped in gridlock in a parking lot. And, and we had been kind of talking, and, and like we came up. And then after, after we had this sort of like festive, you know, parent-child moment, then I added some like R-rated stuff at the end. <laughs> and like that's what's in the book. But they did help me with it. Yeah. So. I, I honestly thought that would be a great sketch. I was like, I want to see it. Dogs, Google searches. They can, I feel like I, that could be like my, my gift to Lauren Michael <laughs> to thank him for all he's given to me. Oh, absolutely. Um, since we have so many fans of your previous novels here, um, I want to ask about a theme that I've noticed um, in, your, in your books and your short stories as well, um, that you focus on people often who have kind of been thrust into fame or are kind of close to fame in one way or another, but also on, like, small communities, like, small communities of either, like, elite people or talented people or some kind of insular community. So I'm thinking about Rodham, where, you know, part of it takes place at Yale Law School, and it's this kind of, like, elite insular place, and then it's the White House or prep, when you're thinking about, about a prep school, um, or even eligible, where, you know, you're, the, the reality TV show is part of the plot. Um, and then here you have this place where it's a bunch of talented people who are thrust together and to get a job like this is like a big thing and that people kind of live and die by this little community. Why is that interesting to you? Um, that's an excellent question that I, I feel like almost like that's like a like therapy style question. Um, well, let's, let's go. I know. I mean, I, I do think setting is very important. Um, and I do think there's something like you know, maybe it's because I wrote prep and, and it was because I had gone to boarding school, it was a sort of insular, you know, elite community, but it was also one that I had, you know, firsthand experience with. And then maybe, maybe I, I sort of felt like, oh, there's something about place that kind of makes it more interesting. I mean, I think I'm definitely like just, like I, above all, I have to not bore myself as a writer, you know, and then, and then aspire to not bore other people. Um, but so, so it might be, you know, partly having to do with that. I also, I remember really consciously thinking when I watched the, the TV show, um, Saturday Night Lights, no, Friday Night Lights, sorry. <laughs> 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 I'll write, I remember like, a sketch on SNL about <laughs> Saturday Night, night Lights. That is a Friday Night we, we can work up. on that together. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where it was, I, I like. I think it was the first time I had been really conscious of it. That if you establish a, a, a sort of a community of some size, I mean, I don't know what it is. If it's like seventy-five people or whatever, it somehow is really satisfying for the viewer or can be for the reader if two people intersect who you don't think of as kind of naturally like having a relationship but then when you think about it it's really realistic like there's something I don't know that I don't know if it like mimics real life in some way um but yeah, so I, I think there is something about... Because even, like, some of the novels that, that I kind of want to write in the future, I think, do that thing that you're pointing out. There, one, one other thing specifically about um, romantic comedy is that doing this research, everything I read about SNL reminded me 
of being a grad student at the Iowa Writers Workshop like mm. 20 years ago. Just and so much of the, and I don't I don't know if you feel this way as like like obviously for you to work at the Washington Post, you know, there's many people who would see this as super desirable and enviable. And I assume that once you work there, everyone you know works at the Washington Post, right? So like there's a weird I mean, basically yeah. there's there's like a weird like internal external status thing. So I, I think that like, you know, it's obviously so competitive to get hired on SNL. But then if you get hired on SNL, you know, you spend however many hours a week at the office and everyone else works there. And then you're, there can be kind of competition with each other. And so it, there's just like a lot of, I mean, a lot of things that in life you don't want to exist, like friction and conflict and overly close, uncomfortable relationships it can be actually really great for fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm actually thinking about when you're talking about the, that intersection of people in a, in a, in a space like that um, in Rodham, you know, the way that at the beginning it's like Hillary Rodham and Bill Clinton and that like you think that Bill Clinton's like he's got a different kind of social scene and different personality and it doesn't make sense that like he would be into Hillary but then that's, that's how it, so I, I can see the like how you do your magic here. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I want to ask, I want to ask two questions. One of which is a bad question, and I think, and I hope that the second of which will be a better question. Um, so, you know, you talked about how you wanted to write this book because, in some ways, you wanted to do something that was more fun and yeah. a little lighter, and that we could all enjoy. And I think, speaking for myself, and I'm sure a lot of other people, that like having this after the last three years um, feels just like a treat. Um, but I also wonder if there's a part of you, as a serious writer, and I don't know if you agree with that, but I think you are a serious writer. Um, that to have a book called Romantic Comedy with a cover like that, that looks a little bit like a, like a Valentine's Day card, um, that it's like, I don't know, were you worried that it was too chick-lit-y? It's so funny, actually, that it was funny to hear you use the phrase chick-lit. So as, as you may or may not know, Chicklet is now called rom-coms. Like the, the books are called rom-coms, just like the movies. And, and apparently, as you may or may not know, that um, there's a, a category, an unironic category called women's fiction, as, as opposed to just fiction. But, and it's, it's being rebranded as book club fiction. Um, oh, so, interesting. <laughs> which, which, I mean, some people also have feelings about. Imagine that. Um, yeah. uh, so, I mean, I... I would say, I think, I think that the kind of rom-com community, and here I'm referring to the books, is very, it's very like robust and diverse. And I think, I think it's different. It's not my personal area of expertise, but it's very, and I have read some books, especially some popular, um, like there's um, Red, Right, and Royal Blue is like a very, you know, beloved recent rom-com. Or I read um, another... Um, Normie celeb rom-com is um, Nora Goes Off Script, which I, for that one, I won't, I don't want to say the celebrities for my own, but I pictured either it's like a, a woman who a, a, writes Hallmark Channel movies and then ends up with a celebrity who I pictured either George Clooney or Brad Pitt, like it seemed like that, that vintage and level of fame. And um, so anyway, so the, it, I mean, there's, like that whole, and, and it's a very passionate um, kind of like reading community, and it's a very um, like uh, 
what's, what's the word? That's very high sales right now. I mean, I think eternally, but especially now. Um, but I mean, I, I uh, feel like I definitely think in terms of the specific like topic or plot I want to write. And it's almost like the, the world which by which I mean like publishing, tells me what I wrote. So they're like, you wrote a literary coming of age <laughs> novel or like you wrote, I mean, people will say that both, I think especially um, Rodham, they'll say, oh, it's, it's fan fiction or it's, so, so there's, I, I mean, like political entry, like romantic. I mean, again, entry. but it's, but it's also like a lot of those categories exist, not I think because Right. I mean, some writers, I think, are very passionately, like, self-identify as, like, I'm a science fiction writer or I'm a rom-com writer. But I think a lot of those are, like, marketing and sales categories. And, and I, feel, I feel very flexible, um, you know, in terms of... But I, I think I definitely did write a romance. And I, I mean, I think it's, like, really pretty. It is, I, no, I love the cold. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. and, it, and it screams, like love and fun. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I also have to say, I've, I've sometimes thought to myself, like, I'm, I'm super kind of protective of, like, every sentence and every comma. And, and then, but if, if I were given, you know, permission from Random House to, like, choose my own covers, which I never, I mean, I, it's like a conversation, but if I unilaterally could choose one, I think I would probably choose some, like, terrible and like yeah so it's like they they kind of come up with this and and sort of yeah and then I say like oh that's so creative mm -hmm. <laughs> um wait was that the bad question that, yeah yeah that was the bad oh, question okay, just okay. because I do I feel like even chick lit e as an adjective is like pejorative and unfair and like we like what we like and yeah, we get yeah. to to um embrace that um but you also set up my better question very well because in thinking about this, I um, recalled a short story that you wrote for The New Yorker uh, in 2017, I believe, called Show, Don't Tell, which is about, um, and also if you haven't read this story, always read Curtis's short stories is like the TLDR here. Ah. Um, but so it's about, um, and I'll just summarize it briefly. Um, it's about a woman who's a writer in an MFA writing program that's very prestigious that seems a lot like the Iowa Writers' Workshop, um, of which you are an alum, as you mentioned, um, and that she's, like, really stressed about getting this fellowship, and it's very competitive, and she's sort of comparing herself to all her fellow writers. Um, and then you realize, spoiler, you realize by the end of the story that this narrator, this protagonist, has gone on to become a very successful writer, but a very specific kind of successful writer. Um, and I am going to read a little bit um, of what she says. You know, this is the voice of the character. In the almost 20 years that have passed since that night, I have written and have had published seven novels. All except the first two were bestsellers. As it happens, my novels are considered women's fiction. <laughs> this is an actual term used by both publishers and bookstores and means something only slightly different from gives off the vibe of 10-year-old girls at a slumber party. <laughs> Several times a year, I travel to speak to auditoriums of 500 people, no more than a handful of whom are men. On occasion, none are men, though we do have some men here. Which is and my uncle's here, no. <laughs> and my brother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, and then she goes on to kind of talk about how she's thinking about like another like former classmate who's also been very successful, but in a different kind of way. She says... He's the kind of writer about whom current students in the program have heated opinions. 
I'm the kind of writer that their mothers read while recovering from knee surgery. <laughs> to be clear, I'm mocking neither of my readers nor myself here. It took a long time, but eventually I stopped seeing women as inherently ridiculous. And I'm wondering how much of that, and I know, I know it's not autobiographical, it's but how, fiction. <laughs> <laughs> but, but how much of that do you think reflects your journey, and how much do you think this book reflects that journey? Okay, well, so one thing I'll tell you, like, <clears throat> uh, I mean, so I wrote that in 2017, which I've actually, um, this is like the third book I've had since. So I probably thought, like, how many books has she written? Seven. It's, so, it's, it's funny, because like, I, I was probably like, weird. imagine writing seven books or whatever. And, like, like, this is totally sincere. Like, you guys are a huge crowd for me. Like, I'm, I'm it's the funniest part of that is that I would never, like, I would, I would have... 500 people come to hear me if I was on a panel with like eight other writers or something like it's and I mean again Random House has done like a beautiful like I have very talented publicist but that writer is definitely more successful than, than I and, <laughs> and I, I kind of meant her to be like uh, it, it is so I mean it's like totally absurd where um, you know like like as a as a writer like you could be like you know write something where, like, let's say you have a, a twin brother and, like, you, you, you grew up in Philadelphia and then, um, like, you write a story and it has all those details or something and, and people are like, it's autobiographical. And, and you'd be like, but the comforter on my bed was blue when I was little or something like that it feels. But, and I think it's also really disorienting. Like, the more you know a writer, the more distracting it probably is to be. Um, but still, I feel like the premise of, like... Was there, did, did you have to come to embrace that, like, that writing a book like this is meaningful? And it, and it... Oh, oh. Well, so actually, there's maybe a different, a different way to answer that. So I, I, like, tweeted about this, and then I was surprised that it ended, there ended up being a response that this is a, a sincere thing. So a journalist said to me, um, are you worried that the title or the cover of your book will deter male readers? And, like, in the tweet, I said, like, I, I feel like all seven of my male readers are really loyal, and I think they'll... <laughs> like, I, I think they'll like it. But it, it actually... I mean, I remember when Prep was published 18 years ago, and it did kind of... I think there were almost more questions... I mean, this seems so ridiculous, but almost about, like positioning me or positioning the book or whatever. And I, I mean, I actually, when I said like the seven, seven male readers, I like literally, I almost could name, like I could be like, there's, <laughs> there's David, like there's Donnie, like there's, um, so it, I don't know. I, 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 it just feels like, I mean, it's interesting. I, I do, I mean, Sally talks about like, obviously, you know, like I feel like gender is, is, we have a different conversation about it, and um, you know it seems like much more interesting. I think that's a, a wonderful, like expansive thing. I mean, I think most of my, the, like probably 95% of my readers identify as women, and I think the publishing world is is like like I I so I don't know like it's why I actually feel so lucky or like I don't really give much thought like there's and the other thing I will say so there maybe in like the early 2000s there was a year when 
all the National Book Award nominees were women, and they all were books that had sold relatively few copies, like 1,000-ish or 2,000-ish, and there were lots of articles about it. Um, and I feel like no one would bat an eye. Now, like just I, the conversation has shifted. So I don't, I don't think I feel defensive. And I, I mean, I also, I feel so like kind of grateful and lucky because, because I've gotten to publish, you know, eight books now. Um, but I still am. And books that really speak to people. Um, yes, yes. But although I, I'm not, I still truly, tru- like I think I, I meant for this woman to be almost like Jodi Picot level more than, you know, we'll see. I'm, I can aspire, who, and by the way, Jodi Picot is like a super lovely person. And <laughs> I feel like the theme of this conversation is going back to be like, just to be clear, I'm not shading this celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Jodie Picot and Pete Davidson are both lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have never met Pete Davidson, but... I'm sure it'll happen soon. Um, but, I mean, I think you know, just to bring it full circle, I trust, <laughs> I trust you all know he has a Hillary tattoo, right? I mean, that's so endearing. Like, who I couldn't love that. him? Where is his tattoo? <laughs> I mean, it's hard to... Tell, of her right? face or her logo? I think or her, something else. I think of her face. Oh. And the day when it was made public, I think it was after 2016, you would think I had like committed this all to memory. I'm pretty sure she on social media posted something like, now I can reveal my Pete Davidson tattoo. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, so despite the the silliness um, and the fun in this book, um, it, it does go to some real and, and sometimes serious places, um, especially because the latter part of the book takes place during the pandemic. Um, and I was wondering, like, what, what are the, not just like the, the kind of circumstantial plot devices of the pandemic that were useful, like we're all at home, we're, you yeah. know, like we all lived it. Um, but like, what are the qualities that you wanted to bring out in this plot, in this, like, will they or won't they romance um, that you felt like were of the pandemic? Um, well, so, you know, the, the TV show, like, the, the week in the life of the TV show takes place in 2018. And I don't, I don't, you can stop me if this is a spoiler or something, but... Um, they, you know, there's this, like, chemistry and flirting, and then Sally kind of makes things go off the rails, like, maybe not consciously, but maybe semi-intentionally. And then two years pass, and it's um, 2020, and Noah reaches out to her via email. And I do think, you know, like, a lot of us had more time on our hands than we usually did. And, I mean, it's it's almost like... um, you know, the things that you think of if you, if you get in bed at night and then you don't fall asleep, like there's, you know, your, your mind kind of goes to certain places. And so I think in, in this context, it's supposed to be like, well, you know, she's, she, Noah is still sort of thinking about Sally and Sally is still thinking about Noah. And maybe neither of them would have done anything about it if they were leading their, their normal lives where she's working, you know, 90 hours a week and he's touring constantly. But in, instead, he's lonely in his mansion in LA and she's staying with her um, stepdad and his beagle in Kansas City, um, slightly less glamorously. Um, and so, you know, that it's it kind of, I think, I mean, obviously the pandemic was 
was and is like horrible, and it's it it's you know it's so confusing, and it's it's hard to know like I, you know it's, sometimes it's like hard to know how to how to be a person or what what norms there are, what risks to take. Um, and I also do think it it made people in some cases like think about their priorities or restructure their lives, and that the characters are examples of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so part of that. Part of that part of the book um, during the pandemic, there is a moment where one of the characters, um, uh, she has a, a, well, I'll just say the main character, has a um, stepfather, um, and he gets sick. Um, and it's a pretty scary moment. And I hope this is okay to ask you about, and feel free to veer away if, um, if it's not. But um, I know that your dad passed away. Um, yeah, yeah. A, about a year after the start of the pandemic. And I just thought that those scenes of like what it's like to care for an older loved one yeah. were really, really moving. Oh, and I was just wondering if that was in your mind while you were writing. I mean, yeah, I'm sure. Like, I, I think, I do think, um, I mean, I, I think that if you're, if you're a fiction writer, like, you know, there's, there's sort of things coming in from, you know, like in, in all sorts of ways. And I think, you know, again, like sometimes it's conscious and sometimes it's not conscious, but... Yes, definitely. And I think in general, um, you know, like I was saying that I, I feel like um, in terms of writing the kind of fake sketches for the show that I feel like life ends up being, um, you know, like absurd or embarrassing. Like I, I try very hard to be realistic in fiction. And I think I think for all of us, like life is super sad it's like super you know funny it's like delightful and if you if you are kind of realistic and faithfully depict that like your your book will have kind of all the moods and yeah it does I mean the um just to so as not to dissuade people I would say the the, the book does have a happy end I don't know like that's kind of a, a little like they're actually in that one thing I've learned about the sort of romance that people will say, is, is there an H-E-A, which is a happily ever after? And I almost like, you know, cover your ears if you really don't want to know, but I, I think you can have, you can feel relatively confident going forward. <laughs> and what's great is that I feel like the, at least to me, one of the takeaways of, of the end of the book is like, caregiving is sexy. <laughs> and like, people who are good at giving care to, you know, to each other, to family members, you know, that, that's, yeah, like, no, that's, I mean, like, well, that's, that's the money quality you're looking for, especially when like the world is coming to an end. I, that's kind of true. I mean, I, I do think that there, there's like, I mean, I think something Sally kind of thinks or wonders about is, you know, like, like, like what is romance or what is fake? And are we like, is, is writing emails and kind of being your polished, funny self, like, are you being more fake or more real? And then also, like, you know, if you're having a kind of very romantic date and you, like, put on your nice clothes and whatever, like, is that a fake version of you? And then is the self that's... I, th I do think that, that the kind of challenges that the characters end up facing, things like, you know, going to buy medical supplies at Target, like, actually does bring them closer. So there, there is a hopeful element there. Curtis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you to everyone. Thank you to the, the Post and Six and I and Politics and Crows. So. Martine, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs>
That was the author Curtis Sittenfeld in conversation with me at Sixth and I in Washington, D.C. Her new book is Romantic Comedy. If you're interested in learning more about it, we'll include a link in our show notes. And if you'd like to hear my first interview with Curtis, you know, the one that I did for my closet, about her previous book, Rodham, we'll include a link to that, too. I hope you're having a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.